Are you ready to turn your investments into retirement income? Listen in as Jeremy Kyle and his guests reveal ways you can make smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions to achieve your ideal retirement. You will learn more about your money so you can feel better about your money and make better money decisions. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into a consistent income. And today we're not talking so much about savings, so much about income, but inflation and perhaps how it could hurt your savings, hurt your income. And I read a great article in the Investments and Wealth Monitor written by Felipe Taves from Taves Asset Management. I thought I'm going to reach out to this person, see if he can be on our show. And thank you, Felipe, for, for doing so. Great to be here. Yeah. And uh, of course, you write this research article because you are very interested in inflation because you run an, an investment management firm. So perhaps a little bit differently than how, how I go about it as a personal financial advisor, you're managing money, you're, you're running money is maybe a term there. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah. So we, I run an asset management firm that has about $2 billion under management. And our specialty is investing and just trying to be there for in stock and bond markets, but attempting to address the possibility that markets will make big moves lower, which as it turns out, they do. So our, our, we're trying to uncorrelate from markets when they turn lower, either through trend following algorithms that move us out of the markets, or in some cases through options that help to offset losses. Gotcha. Now uh, I'm feeling some terms that might be in there. Macro, quant, does that apply to you at all? Somewhat. Uh, so so one, one of the things we don't do is we don't look at macro or fundamental data to attempt to predict what's going to happen to the markets. Instead, all of our different asset management programs, funds, ETFs are either reactive. So they're reacting to trends and trying to move based on that, or they're just, they just have different types of options contracts to help to offset losses. But what we're not doing we're not saying, okay, we think markets are moving higher or lower and then making big decisions based on that. That's that's for people that, well, most most people fail at that and, and we don't try that either. <laughs> I like that. So I would say uh, you're preparing instead of predicting. And we were talking earlier, you're preparing a lot for what if the market just goes crazy haywire? Because a lot of times the conventional investing, uh, w- let's say that it works as long as nothing goes haywire. And you're right. saying things probably go haywire every so often. Why not be prepared for it? Exactly. And what's so interesting about the field of investing, interesting slash perilous, so <laughs> not necessarily a positive interesting, is that markets enter generational trends. So someone can be learning and training about how to invest for 20 or 30 years, and then all of a sudden, everything changes and what they have learned doesn't work anymore. And so that's one of the places where I think both investment advisors and firms like ours can really aid investors. Yeah. Got it. And speaking of some trends, you see often that inflation sticks around for a while. You see that the way bonds are going sticks around for a while, the way stocks are going sticks around for a while. Well, something interesting and tell me, what do you feel about this? I read this, uh, maybe in the Investments and Wealth Monitor. I'm also a, a CFA charter holder. And so it might've been their magazine. 
but they had said, everyone says, go invest for the long run. Well, how long is the long run? And kind of the research suggested that in stocks, it takes like 15 years to actually truly be the long run where kind of things kind of settle together and say, okay, that's long enough to deal with any ups and downs. But for bonds, it was like 30 or 35 years is really the long run for bonds. How do you feel about that? Well, so first of all, before we begin our this discussion, we were talking offline about the Great Depression and, and 15 years would not have been long enough for that instance where if you started in 29, it wasn't all the way until around 42 that markets finally ended the bear market and you wouldn't have recovered by that point. But yeah, so talking about generational trends, bonds and inflation are two examples of both a, a data economic data point in the case of inflation, but for bonds, the returns, everything may be changing for the first time in four decades. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. And I imagine that the bond situation has a bit to do with inflation. And of course, in the US, inflation hasn't been too bad for years. And then all of a sudden in 21, 22, it just skyrocketed. Although you might argue that uh, high single digits isn't, isn't truly a, a skyrocket when you look at what else could be possible on there. But it's interesting where a lot of people have the, I guess, the um, misperception that the way things were are going to last forever. And the way things are in the U.S. is the only way it could ever be. And that's something that you put in your article is that you can't only look at your own country, which happens to be the U.S. for most everyone listening here, and just say, well, what what happened here is, is always going to happen. Tell me about inflation kind of everywhere else besides the U.S. That was, that was a big point that you had in there. Yeah, there was a study that was done a number of years ago by a couple of professors that looked at global inflation. And there there have been, or they could find 50 separate instances globally in countries where inflation went above, and get this, 50% a month. Right. Oh so when we think about our when we think about high inflation in the US. The highest we've ever been over any 12-month trailing period was just peaking above 20% in a year. Oh, wow. But, yeah. but, but it sounds like a lot right now. That, that's right. So that, but that's an example of 50% a month. And we think of inflation, I believe you know, in the U.S., when we think of inflation, we tend to think of things like we're seeing now, which are capacity issues and labor and commodities. But in those instances... Inflation was largely driven by currency crises, and that means that countries ran out of the ability to service their debt, and as a result, the currency was was largely devalued. And of course, based on government debt, and that's of course nothing we need to worry about now, right? No, no, no sovereign country has high debt that would cause us to have that concern. But that's you know that's something another thing that really no one is considering the possibility that that we will run out of capacity to, to fund debts on a sovereign entity or a government basis. But it's at least something, another thing to think about and look at. Yeah. So you're saying that there's 50 other examples of inflation going at 50% per month. And virtually all of those is because the government of that country just couldn't pay its own borrowing, couldn't pay its own debt. Exactly. And of course, here we are in the U.S. and we kind of think we're the golden children and, and nothing ever bad will happen uh, to the U.S. But a lot of the 
reasons why people couldn't pay back that debt is because, or governments couldn't pay back that debt is because there's too much of it and interest rates are going up. And there's just this bad cycle where it just got worse and worse. And and you're perhaps, um, I guess you're saying, you're not saying it will happen, but it at least ought to be priced in, right? It ought to be thought about or talked about of, well, what if the government, what if the US government can't pay back their debts? It's a classic example of not seeing something for a very long time and then assuming it can never happen. Yeah. So, you know, are we there yet? You don't know. Another study that was done by Rogoff and Reinhardt looked at w- at what level countries were vulnerable to potentially not being able to service their debt. And what they found was that once you get above 90% of, of D- GDP at a debt level, that's when you start to run into potential problems. Of course, we're pretty much there now. And what's interesting about the sovereign debt question is that so much writing just implies that there is no limit. There is no limit as to how high debt can go. And, 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 and you know, things, you know, countries like Japan help people believe that because they've run high debt for so long. But as we've seen recently, the yen is ground central for what could potentially happen as we've seen their, their currency devalue over the last 12 months. Yeah, definitely. Well, I appreciate you being on because you've got a lot of research into this. You are uh, thinking through a lot of it. And there's uh, some terms I want people to to understand. And when people talk about inflation, really, there's another term called purchasing power. And especially when you think of a, a bond or a stock, you know, if inflation goes up by 5%, but you got 5% on your savings account, you're kind of even right? If inflation went up by 10% and your stocks made 10%, you're basically even on your purchasing power, right? You you had the same ability to go buy you know, a gallon of milk or a gallon of gasoline on there. So you both looked at inflation, which is kind of just the rise in prices, but also something called purchase power, which kind of coordinates, well, oh my goodness, the prices went up, but did the assets, did the stocks and bonds kind of keep up with that? Or did it not quite keep up with it? And so you you brought up both inflation and a thing called purchasing power. I, I imagine you would argue it's the purchasing power that's probably more important. Would that sound about right? Yes. yes okay. All right. Well, excellent. I'm 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 picking up on on what you're you're doing here, and you put these charts together of how there's specific times. So back around 1920, back in the 1940s, back in the 19 70s. And of course, most people around today are just thinking of the 70s with inflation. And so I love how you went back over 100 years in the US specifically to talk about different points of times where there was inflation, but maybe worse yet, there was this purchasing power decrease, your your inability that the stock that you held wasn't worth as much, uh, even if the, the price associated with it went up. So tell me about those. I think you have three specifically. So around ni- the late 1910s, 1940s and 1970s. Let's just talk about those and, and maybe what we can draw some conclusions on yeah. for today, or maybe not conclusions, but uh, I guess some warnings perhaps. No, it's it, it's super important to look at because right now there are a lot of headlines that are discussing peak inflation and people are asking, have we reached peak inflation? And the, the, way, that, the way the question is or the topic is being framed is as if inflation is something that historically is very in control and then goes high and then comes back and it's normal again. And that's not what's happened historically. So if you if you look at those three different instances over the last more or less hundred years, 
and ask what happened during those instances of high inflation in the US. And the answer in a very shorthand version is on average, inflation about double, right? Purchase, so which means that prices, you know, if you paid $250 for eggs, by the end of it, you were paying $5 for eggs. And so 100% increase inflation. And when you think of it that way, to have 9.1% in any one year is only a fraction of the total increase in inflation that happened during those three episodes. So that's the way to think about inflation is, is not have we peaked or what was the one year number, but what is the cumulative effect of an inflation experience going to be? Yeah, when it comes to about 9.6 was uh, allegedly peak inflation, we'll call it, we'll call it that. So let's just say about 9%. Okay. Like, oh my goodness, if it's only 8.9 for the next 10 years, are we going to be excited <laughs> that right. it's it's past the peak? You know, right. it's uh, exactly. doesn't matter if it, it just dropped down a little bit and, and that happened to be the highest number. If it's, it's almost a how, how long. And so many people are using this word toward call transitory of inflation. Well, it spiked, but that's uh, just a temporary thing. And it seems like there's not too much temporary inflations that happen. Would you say that? Correct. Although, you know, what's even I am vulnerable to recency bias, and even I'm so used to low inflation, I think we all yeah. just assume somewhere in, in our psyches that it's just going to go back to normal because we're so used to that. And so I, I used the parallel in an interview this morning about, you know, the, the different five stages of grief. And the first one is denial. And I think that that's what's happening is we've been so used to low inflation or controlled inflation in this denial. There was a fascinating interview of Paul Volcker you know, just in the last couple of weeks, and he was talking about what he did. And boy, he was talking about how he had raised rates as high as 20%. And there was still a quarter or two when money supply was still not down and labor was still super strong. And so and until it finally broke. So we just don't know what it's going to take. It doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem possible, but it is. Yeah. I like how you said normal too, because so many people think there's like a normal inflation. And I'm remembering, this is even seven or eight years ago, I was at an investment conference. And the, the big question from the advisors to this economics investment manager expert, they kept saying, well, when are interest rates going to go back to normal? And he said, I, I'm kind of tired of that question. Let me show you a chart of interest rates from 1950 to 1980, which basically went straight up. And there's a chart from 1980 down to 2010, which went basically straight down. He said, okay, of those 60 years, which one is the normal year? Because it just went straight up and then straight down. Like there's, there kind of is no normal. It seems like you would uh, argue there's a, there's a trend uh, on there versus normal. Uh, and I'm looking here, it's the same thing with inflation. So you you talk about the the 40s with high inflation and and maybe it averaged, uh, I don't know, five or 6% for some time. But then all of a sudden I'm looking here in the fifties and it kind of averaged like 1%-ish, right? Mm -hmm. And you think the the seventies was bad and it averaged whatever it averaged. I mean, it got up to 13% by, by 1980, but then it kind of uh, slowly went down until about 1990. And ever since 1990 or so, it's been basically 3% for the longest time. And then like one or 2% for the longest time. Like which which is the normal? Is it the three percent in nineteen ninety two? Is it the one percent in twenty fifteen? Like what? Which number is normal? You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you you can't think of normal. You can maybe more think of uh, I guess trending is the way yeah. it would look. So I'm I'm guessing you you would say that inflation is trending up. What what do you think there? 
It definitely is, at least at the moment. Yeah. And that's exactly it. I love how you won't make a prediction because you shouldn't because it, who knows? Uh, we could be, uh, yes, inflation has gone up. When it does go up, it seems to go up for like 10 plus years, right? That, But does that mean that this time now that's up for maybe a year and a half or so, will it continue for the next 10 years or will it be different? You don't, you don't know. And to make that prediction one way or another, I think that's why you want people to be prepared for inflation compared to predicting it and trying to make huge, huge bets on that. Exactly. Good. Well, that's kind of bringing the question of, well, how do you prepare for inflation? What, what are you doing to, I guess, invest in a world where inflation, I'm going to say probably will continue up because that's kind of the trend, but maybe doesn't. How do you, how do you invest that way? Well, so along with the examination of those high inflation episodes, as you were alluding to earlier, we looked at what happened to stocks during those periods of high inflation and what happened to bonds. And so as one might guess, bonds did very poorly during all three episodes of high inflation. On average, if you invested in a bond, average corporate bond portfolio and held it through that period of high inflation, which we defined as inflation when it reaches double digits, or higher in any one year, and then that entire cumulative period, bonds lost about 30% of purchasing power, as you were referring to earlier. And so once you, if you're working with an investment advisor and you're paying fees or you're accessing bonds through funds, because that's an index returns, you'd probably be looking at about 50% loss of purchasing power, which is not awesome at all. Mm-hmm. And so bonds are not a great investment during high inflation and stocks Stocks actually did much better on average. Stocks on average kept up with inflation, which means that when inflation increased about 100% in those episodes, stocks increased about 100%, but it was varying results. In one case, stocks lost over 30%. In one case, they made more than inflation did. But here's something that's really interesting when you look at the play out of what happened to stocks during high inflation. And that is that stocks every time initially lost quite a bit coming into high inflation. So as we went from benign to high inflation, stocks could move significantly south. A great example of that would be the last time we had high inflation prior to this time, which was in the 70s and 80s. And there, you know, someone can look at the 73 and 74 where stocks lost 50%. There's one other data point that's super worth mentioning, which is that, you know, I said bonds lost, 30%. But actually, if you zoom out, way out, and you include the the second episode of inflation, which began in the 40s, and and the third, which began in the 70s, and you include what happened to bonds encompassing both of those, well, interest rates raised during that period went from as low as 2% up to 13, 14%. And over that whole period, bonds lost 18% real over 36 years, mm-hmm. Jeremy. So that means that for an ent- you know some investors' entire investing lifetime, they were losing purchasing power. So that means that that asset class was something that just was radioactive. That's before fees or anything else. We refer to that, or I refer to that, I believe in the paper, as a big, bad bond bear. Which is perfect, so, right? Alliteration is great. Yeah, so it's 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 a perfect example of how so which is so interesting because 
Over the last 36 years, bonds have done great. Not only have they added stability to portfolios, but they've provided decent above inflation gains even after fees. So this is a perfect example of what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, which is things work one way for a long time and then everything changes. So I'm still teasing you, Jeremy, by not answering the question, what do you do? It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our 5-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com Use the number or spell it out. You'll get there either way. Fivestepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening. And now for the rest of the show. No, and that's all right. I uh, appreciate kind of where you bring it up the nuance because we talk to clients all the time. I'm sure you talk to clients and perhaps investors and people that are in charge of a big, big dollar amounts. And uh, well, here I'm, I'm talking to, to people in general with, let's just call it about a half million dollars to, you know, three or four or $5 million. And I'm imagining you're having conversations with investors and institutional people that perhaps are in charge of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. And I wonder if we have the same exact type of conversations where here's the conversations I I hear is, uh, hey, call me before the stock market drops, or I'm going to wait until after inflation drops before I you know invest in the stock market. And what I remind people, and I, uh, of course, everything could change at any point in time, which I think is what you're agreeing with as well too is that markets are actually more predictive than the economies. You know, we're, we're here in 2022. It's the summer of 2022. When we're talking maybe about fall of 2022 when we'll be releasing this. So we'll see how things work in the next five weeks or so. But you said when uh, stock, uh, when inflation kind of goes from, you know, low or moderate to high, stocks lose initially. And so but then they turn around. So I'm, I'm thinking here, even the, the report that inflation was at a peak came out, uh, you know, let's call it around 4th of July. And guess when the market started turning around? When <laughs> when there was an announcement that uh, inflation is at a high point. So if you're saying, let me wait till things cool down, the market is more predictive than the economy. It's not the other way around. You can't wait for the economy to turn around before the market does. It's the opposite, which does prove, I think, some of the conventional wisdom to you know, stay invested, have a plan, and and stick to it. That's my perspective on it. Then it is well. Let me just wait until things get better, right? If you wait till things get better, it's too late. Yeah, I would tell, I would completely agree. In fact, the internet bubble burst, bear market, and also the financial crisis. The economy is doing fine when stocks fell off a cliff in each instance, and stocks tended to be be the predictor. Yeah, that's right on. Well, even then, too, where stocks, where a lot of people say, okay, well, uh, I'm going to invest in stocks to keep up with inflation, that's, uh, I think you're, it's proving it out so far in your your research that yes, that happened. Well, in your case, two or three times, right? So not all the time. You can't say it's always going to happen. But yes, it did happen You know, over a uh, five-year period, eight-year period. It didn't happen like, oh my goodness, inflation went up this month and so did stocks, right? It's, it's not a one-for-one -one ratio and it's a, not a ratio where it happens exactly at the same time. You know, so yeah, if you if you look at that big bad bond bear that we talked about and ask the question, well, what happened to stocks during that time? 
And that gets really interesting because stocks did okay during times of high inflation, but in that 36-year bonded bear market, stocks did phenomenally well. And they returned about 740% after inflation cumulatively. So so what are the key takeaways from all that data that we've been talking about? We believe the takeaways are, number one, figure out a way to maintain your stock exposure, Mm -hmm. right? Potentially address the possibility of of a big move lower. And I think that may be in the cards because we're still at high valuations. We've got a lot of challenges to the stock market. And historically, stocks have moved down as you go into high inflation. And then number two, figure out a way to adapt your fixed income approach so that you address the possibility of of rising interest rates or principal losses. Yeah. Well, that's it. I'm going to ask you kind of to define those for a little bit. Those are new terms. I think people ought to uh, at least understand that those, I don't know if options is the right word, but those those ideas are out there. And in, in my experience, kind of my world where I'm talking to people, there's really four areas to invest. It's stocks, bonds, cash, and real estate. And in general, I think when it comes to real estate, that your your home equity probably gives you enough percentage-wise to have invested in real estate. It also maybe shows the power of, of owning your home and maybe the power too of having a fixed mortgage sometimes on there. But all t- people will ask us, you know, do I have too much cash? Do I have not enough stocks? Do I have too many bonds? And you know, all these things. And in, in my opinion, it's like you just need to figure out the right percentage for you and not stick with it, but rebalance because things change. And the market goes up and down, inflation goes up and down, rates go up and down. Show me the one person that gets all six of those uh, correct. Okay, I got the market up this time while inflation was down and rates were up. You know, and you know, good good luck there. So just being uh, exposed, I suppose, to the world market through the different areas, the stocks, bonds, cash, and real estate will, in general, I think, get people more towards the right level. But you've got uh, two different strategies that you talk about, adaptive fixed income and hedged equity. And if you could define those, I think that'd be a great educational piece for, for all of us. Great. So we have, as a part of our asset management firm, a division that we created a number of years ago called the Behavioral Investing Institute. And that division does research and investor surveys and attempts to figure out ways to build portfolios that work more in tune with the way real people think and react to markets. But also, it's not just that, it's really figuring out a way to look at the broader course of history and include things like both the bond, big bad bond bear that we talked about, but also the Great Depression, which was a time when stocks did very badly for over a decade, and create portfolios that are designed to do okay or even well, regardless of what happens. And here's why that's so important. If you have a certain understanding of how bad markets can get, whether it's stocks or bonds, and then as an investor, all of a sudden things are worse than that or even way worse than that, that creates an intense psychological desire to bail out or to abandon ship. And, mm-hmm. and what's interesting is sometimes it's best to abandon ship. I mean, in, in the Great Depression, if you would have sold out 
halfway through that initial decline, that would have been one of the best things you could have done. And so I'll, 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 I promise you, I won't forget your question. So one of the ways you do that is you build a portfolio that that then is thinking about all these different things can happen and has contingency planning as a part of the way it's built. Uh, and so what we recommend as a part of this, what we call a behavioral portfolio is take 50% of your stocks and put it into hedged equities. And our definition of hedged equities is a strategy that's designed to participate in stock market gains, but maybe not do as well as just buying and holding forever, but has has either can either move out of stocks or has options in place that can attempt to have offsetting appreciation when stocks move lower so that you're not correlating very highly with stocks when they're falling. A great example is some of our strategies were entirely out of the market for most of the first half of this year. So mm-hmm. as everything was falling and and stocks were cratering, 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 we were not correlated at all with some of our funds and strategies with the stock market. And so that's that's really simple: correlate during rising markets, but attempt to uncorrelate during falling markets, and accept the fact that you may not do as well during rising markets. And then for fixed income, what adaptive fixed income? In our case, it's a tactical strategy that is able to move out of just conventional bonds into maybe short duration bonds or inflation protected bonds or high yield bonds in a desire to not participate in bond losses fully if they move lower. And what you may not you may not get a lot of above inflation growth in that asset class during times of high inflation, but the hope would be that you at least don't print a lot of losses, or you minimize losses during times of high inflation with your bond portfolios. Right on. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing what the, that means, because I think I see all the time people are either saying, get out of the market or write it out. And I feel like the answer is neither one of those, right? Right. Because when you get out of the market, it's a matter of when do you actually get back in? Correct. So just to say, get out of the market because it's down or going down, you know, good luck saying, well, it's going to go down. You're saying don't even predict it, right? You're, you've got a strategy to try to help uh, mitigate losses uh, if the market goes down, and yet you won't even predict when the market goes down because that's a fool's errand. Uh, I think you would agree with you know, on there. But the most then, amazing, yeah, the most amazing example uh, of that exactly is the is 2020 when the pandemic happened and our strategies moved out of the markets in February. And of course, everything just fell to pieces and nothing is more terrifying for anyone, either as a consumer or a business owner or an employee or an investor to, to look at photos of big cities with no one in them, you right. know, economic activity stopping. It's like it's like the heartbeat of the economy completely coming to a halt. And so then markets bottom on March the 23rd when the Fed says they're going to do everything possible to support it. And boy, I tell you, we did not predict that stocks would rally that year. And I was fully convinced that we were going to go into a depression. Our systems went back into the markets in April. And then, of course, look what happened. Like at the end of that year, things were so much higher. I don't know anyone that made that prediction. Yeah, I can't think of anyone either, too. The way we go about it is we think that you set your strategy and then you kind of set these boundaries around it to say, well, if if, if you have too much in one area... You know, if it if it's off by a dollar, that's you know, why bother, right? But if it moves far enough apart, 
that's the time to actually do a rebalancing. And so I, I, I'm glad you mentioned March 23rd of, of 2020. Uh, our, our triggers kind of happened March 20th. So the Friday, you know, before that Monday. And so we did a rebalancing. And if only it happened on Monday, you know, the next time it would have been a little bit, a little bit nicer. But we were going through and saying things are outside of the 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 strategy. And so now now it's time to do the rebalancing. And if you had just said, I'm gonna pull out of cash or pull into cash, and you know, what's your trigger to actually get back into it? Or even the idea of just write it out, you know, write it out, I guess the what you can do if you're only invested. 100% in the S&P 500. I don't know too many p- people that are that way. Uh, there's there's probably some level of rebalancing that can be done or ought to be done if if the timing is right. And it's funny too, because a lot of our clients have were asking us at the beginning of 2022, hey, the market's down, should we rebalance? And I said, it's great that you're thinking of that, but if stocks are down 10% and bonds are down tw- 10% and most of what you have is stocks and bonds, there's not too much you can rebalance because the uh, things aren't out of balance at that that point in time. So it's interesting how you can, like you said, the market changes. It's not 100% that when stocks go down, bonds go up or bonds go down, stocks go up and and all these kind of, I guess, uh, assumptions people can make out of recent history are uh, certainly uh, don't, don't follow through 100% of the time, right? Exactly. Congratulations on that rebalance in 2020. Hey, sometimes uh, you get lucky, right? And yeah, uh, well, luckier would have been uh, Monday instead of Friday, but that's all right. You know, it's interesting about this year and the, the the what's happened in bond portfolios. One of the things we looked at was that, you know, the, the impact of bond losses on a balanced portfolio could be quite significant. And, and during the, the financial crisis, stocks were down 55%, but bonds were up 7.8 during that period. And so in a balanced portfolio was only down 30. But if instead of bonds being up, they lost 20%, then you'd be looking at about a 40% loss. And, you know, with a similar decline in stocks that we saw in the financial crisis. And if you take into account inflation of around 15% cumulative, you'd lose half your purchasing power. So kaboom, right? So it's an interesting environment to think about what the impact of bond losses might be on on an overall balanced approach. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, Felipe, I appreciate you, you coming on. What I'm taking away from this is that inflation generally is not temporary, but it could be. And you should definitely not predict the markets, what, whichever market you're talking about, but you should definitely be prepared for whatever could happen, including the market dropping way down or even the market going way up. And that's uh, something people should keep in mind at all times. That's a great summary. I completely agree with what you're saying. Excellent. Well, thank you, Felipe, for taking some time. Appreciate you being on. Uh, we're going to make sure we get links to your article, links to your firm's website, and all those things in the notes so people can go check check that all out. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you will feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit retirement-revealed.com to learn more. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal, accounting, or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For complete details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is a part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.